0: Hear the word of the Lord. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, it's good to be with you all. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, if you're visiting with us, Welcome. Uh, real quick, I, I want to say thanks uh, to the pastors and staff last week as we adjusted. If, if you didn't know what happened last week, so two weeks ago, Pastor Kevin Galloway preached for us what turns out to be his last sermon. Um, a few days later, he died tragically in a car wreck, and last weekend, I went up to be with the family in their church, Christ Church. We, uh, we partner with them through Sojourn Network, and uh, you, know, you can imagine if you've been to funerals, or the funeral was yesterday. Uh, just the swirl of emotions of gratitude and grief, confusion, uh, joy. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. If I start randomly crying, that's what's going on. So don't you don't have to like freak out, but here we are. I don't know where else I would be other than back with you all. Uh, the family and their church, it just expressed tremendous gratitude for... Our partnership in the gospel through Sojour Network, uh, the support our network's been able to give to them is uh, Christ Church has a lot of challenges that they're going to have to deal with in in the coming weeks and months. So they've got a church in Laporte, Indiana, and Michigan City, Indiana. If you're not from Indiana and you're confused geographically, yes, it's confusing. Michigan City, outside of Chicago, in Indiana. I don't know why they did it that way, but, but that's the way it is. So you can keep praying for Christ Church and... Um, their, their new pastor, John Carr. He's been there for a decade and has lots of challenges in front of him. So keep Pastor John in your prayers in the Galloway family. So, And thank you guys who reached out, sent messages and texts. It's been a brutal week uh, for me personally. Allison and I, my wife Allison, we were up there yesterday. Uh, lots of driving and uh, lots of tears. So here we are. It's good to be with you all. Um, there's a lot going on this week. I don't know how to transition from like announcing what to me feels like an elephant in the room to like, going through announcements on the bulletin. But that's a big week, and there's lots of really great stuff happening. I encourage you to check out your bulletin on the back. Uh, part of our mental health awareness um, seminars that we do, we, it, there was supposed to be one right after this service that we had to cancel earlier this morning. So we'll reschedule that. Um, just pay attention, and, and that'll be coming up. And next week, we start our series on Esther. Uh, I'm excited about the artwork because I think it looks cool. It uh, looks like a playing card. You have an invite card in your bulletin. If you want to bring somebody, you can spend some time considering what are the implications of that bulletin artwork. We'll talk about it. Uh, we're calling it steady, standing strong in a world of chaos. Uh, and certainly we can look at globally and you know, feel like times are, are uncertain. That's not a big leap. But uh, if you live with more than zero humans, you've experienced the chaos of relationships. If you've driven on the road, if you have a job, uh, if you have children in your home, um, you, d- you don't have to go very far to catch that feeling of chaos, anxiety, uncertainty, and we want to spend a few weeks talking about what does it look like uh, to be people who are formed. So this whole Sermon on the Mount series we're finishing today has been about becoming whole people, and in some ways Esther is a case study of what does it look like when some of that wholeness takes root and we're able to stand steady in the midst of chaos. So I hope you guys will be able to come back and check that out next week. We're, we're excited about it. Um, spent a lot of time on I-65 in my life, Uh, I-65, doesn't have a name, right, it's just 65, Uh, spent a lot of time north and south on it, uh, going back and forth between Chicago this last week, and uh, I've spent a lot of, going north on 65 is better than going south on 65, is all I will say. I'm going to get this out of the way, Roll Tide, right, so for all of you Alabama people, Roll Tide, Uh, but listen, you guys, have you ever driven 65 north to south through Alabama, it's like, that's where road trips go to die or something. So listen, if you've never done it, I think on the map it's like 150 miles, something like that, but it takes like 20 hours to get <laughs> south. And listen, you, it's terrible from here. I did the drive a lot from Cincinnati, and you're like, Cincinnati to Kentucky, progress. Kentucky to Tennessee, knocking it out. Tennessee to Alabama, we're flying, and then you're in Alabama for like three days, and the only thing you see is a rocket ship. You know, there's that one rocket ship, (laughs) and the only reason you can endure that god-awful drive through 65 is because you know, at the end of it, is the panhandle of Florida, right? I mean, that's the only, I don't know any other reason why someone would go on 65, let alone have to endure Alabama, so (laughs) roll tide, but... (laughs) I don't know what I don't know why people go there. Um, so a few years ago, I was driving, unfortunately, through Alabama to get to God's Country in Panama City Beach, Florida, and uh, it was shortly after a hurricane had come, and it was bizarre. Alabama has so much land; they plant forests for paper factories, and the the forests, you know, they're for paper factories when you just see rows and rows of trees, and you can look down and they're just perfectly lined up. And after this storm going down 65 through Alabama, the closer you got to the coast, it looked like a giant had come and just pushed all of the trees north by, you know, like 20 or 30 degrees. It was one of the weirdest things I'd ever seen. All, I mean, thousands of trees just all bent at the same angle from this storm. And the closer to the coast you got, you would see uh, trees where it it just looked like bombs had gone off 20 or 30 feet up, where the, the the trunk was splintered and wood was everywhere. And as you got into more populated areas, South Florida, close, or South Alabama, closer to the beach, I mean, you would see houses then that looked like bombs had gone off or roofs that were peeled back like the, the skin of an orange. Or do you call it a skin? The rind? You know what I'm saying. Um, other houses where all you could see was the foundation. Uh, it was devastating. And then I got to where my parents were living at the time, and everything looked fine. Uh, plants were messed up, and there were some street signs that you could tell had spun around and things like that. But, but the houses were fine. And um, you know there was kind of a charismatic-y church down the street that were, were telling people that their church building was secure because they gave regularly to the church. And they pulled this, like, you know, if your house got destroyed, it's because you don't give enough to the church. Um, that's not in my manuscript. That guy's an idiot. I just want to go on <laughs> record as saying that Uh, so this place was fine and my parents neighborhood was fine and their house was fine and i was like is this what they mean by a hedge of protection right like someone just said the magic words and god put the dome over it and i couldn't figure it out and i had several friends in construction at the time and i was like man is this the grace of god or what's what's the deal here and the guy was not surprised one bit Uh, he explained to me how the houses in this neighborhood had been constructed. People had learned their lessons over the years, and so when they started building new houses, they started building them differently. And he explained to me, they they dug about 20 feet into the ground and poured concrete pillars. On top of the concrete pillars, they built a foundation, and then they built the house out of cinder block, and through the gaps in the cinder block, they ran metal rebar all the way down in through those concrete pillars, and then in the gaps... Between the rebar and inside the cinder block, they filled with concrete, and he's going through all of these layers of construction, and at the end, he's like, doesn't surprise me a bit, them houses are good, they're fine, brother, those things will handle 300 miles an hour winds, it's fine. Um, and what, what's crazy is, you know, the, the end product is it's just covered in stucco, and so it doesn't look any different than any of the other houses down there. Um, It's not obvious why the house, if you're just driving by, why did that white stucco house get destroyed? And this white stucco house looks totally fine. From the outside, they fit in with everything else, but internally they were quite different. And you can't see the construction of the house on the outside, uh, but it was revealed through the storm. This is the imagery that Jesus uses to conclude his Sermon on the Mount, and it's imagery that's consistent with the whole thing the last two chapters, maybe you haven't noticed this, but he's constantly comparing and contrasting things that on the surface, it's not obvious which one is good and which one is bad. So he says, uh, we didn't look at this last week, but he says there's two paths. One is narrow and one is wide, but it's not like he says one is well manicured with fresh asphalt and the other one is made of lava and has monsters in it. You're like, well, I'm not going on the lava road. It's it's not obvious which one of these roads would be more pleasant just by looking at it. He says there's two people who pray. He says there's two people that give to the poor. There's two trees that produce fruit, one good and one bad. But that doesn't mean the bad fruit, that it's a shriveled up tree. It means it's a poisonous fruit. And if you've spent time in the woods, you either know a fruit is poisonous, or you learn it's poisonous by eating it. it. It's not like there's a sign that says poison. You know what I mean? It's not obvious. He says there are teachers who say true things, but are wolves. I don't know if anyone saw the little clip working its way through the internet of Kenneth Copeland getting pulled aside by a reporter, being asked all of these crazy questions. And this is a man who on TV knows how to say the right thing. And you can go, if you want to feel uncomfortable for five or ten minutes, you, you can go watch what this guy says under the gun. It's easy to say true things and still be a wolf. Jesus says there are people who perform miracles, but they don't even know him. It's just, just, just tricky when you look at the examples Jesus uses, because on the surface, these are all people that are obeying the Ten Commandments. Like these are all people where you could look at superficially and say they're doing a pretty good job. And Jesus is teaching us people can do the same things on the outside for utterly different reasons on the inside. So you go back and you read the motives that Jesus provides in each of these examples. It's right there, Matthew 5-7. through I'm not giving you any revelation here. It's all in the Bible. Um, The motives he talks about reveals this itch that we have. In essence, he says people will do good things in the hopes of being honored or to look holy or to be accepted. It's all birthed of this hunger we have to know that there's something worthwhile about us. I think everybody wants to feel a sense of weightiness, uh, that our own lives have value and, and significance. And so we put our desires into church clothes and we we play the part. We do things that will look good, or especially in this part of the world, to think that, you know, I'm just a good person. Whoever gets to define what that means. So we do the things that look good, but with motives that are far from the heart of God. Jesus has been trying to teach us through the Sermon on the Mount that, that Christianity is something that must be experienced. It can't just be confessed. So if you, want, if you want the external fruit, which in this metaphor would maybe be the stability of a home that can endure a storm, a beautiful place to live, uh, abundant fruit, peace in your soul, power in your life. If you want that kind of external fruit, you must develop a deeper internal root. Christianity must begin as an internal reality. Rhyme for the week, if you want the fruit, you need the root. You can can put stucco on your house to make make it look like all those fancy houses that were built right, and the truth of your construction will be revealed in the storm. So hopefully, something straightforward for us today. What is this internal root that Jesus is inviting us to? How do we develop it? In essence, Jesus is inviting us here uh, in these past couple of chapters uh, to look at the fruit of someone's life to discern the root of their life. Don't just listen to their words, but look at their lives. So a few examples. Beware the Calvinist who can't sleep at night. That was funnier in the first service. Uh, And maybe you're like, I don't know what a Calvinist is. That's fine. (laughs) stay, just stay out of it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, The debate, I mean. You can be a Calvinist if you want. I'm just saying. So in essence, what is Calvinism? It's this high view of God being in control. Uh, And they'll point to verses like in Isaiah. uh, God will say through Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord, there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and I say all my purposes will stand, and I will do all that I please. And the Calvinists are like, Oh, so tough. The end from the beginning. All my purposes will stand. I will do as... So the Calvinists are the ones who have this high view. God is in control. And you would think if you believed that there was divine power guarding every aspect of your life, you would sleep like a baby you're laying in bed and you're like, man, I don't know what's going to happen at work tomorrow. We're behind on bills and this thing is happening. I'm worried about my teenager. You'd be like, but God is sovereign and he's ultimately in control and he's for my good. So it'll be fine. You see, it's strange. It's strange to get in arguments on the internet or to write books or to have all of these strong opinions about how in control God is. And then when the rubber meets the road in your life, you can't sleep at night. Beware the person that preaches grace but will not extend forgiveness. Beware the person that preaches grace but will not confess their own sin and humble themselves when they've hurt you. Beware the person who advocates caring for the poor but isn't generous. On, on and on and on we could go. Jesus is saying, you need to take a look beyond words and into the root. And, and often the clearest evidence we have of the root of someone's life is revealed in suffering. So he, in essence, invites us to think of a hurricane. Do you notice the words that he he used here? He says, torrents of rain. It's not a little bit of rain. Rising floodwaters, winds beating against the house. I just wonder, uh, do you know this kind of suffering? Do you know the kind of pain that makes you feel like you're drowning? Where you feel like there's no way out? Where you feel beaten on every side, being bombarded with adversity? Do you know this kind of suffering? And if you don't, enjoy it. You enjoy the freedom from it because I don't think I know anybody who's made it to 30 without experiencing the kind of suffering, the kind of pain, the kind of loss that leaves you gasping for air. What of the house with that deep internal root? What does Jesus say when these kinds of losses and sufferings pile up? He says, the house won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. The word that comes to mind in this image is, the, is the idea of stability. You have the internal construction. You you have the rebar and the concrete in the walls to withstand the storm. Maybe you lost a couple of shingles. Maybe shrubs got tossed up, but the house still stands. The, The promise of the wholehearted human, a truly alive human, which has been the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the promise of the wholehearted human is the power to withstand the storm to bend and not be broken, to remain stable and steady, even as life goes in un- unexpected directions. And in, in many ways, Esther is going to be a, a drawn-out illustration of this point. And so we can think of this internal root practically in, in two ways. This, I would say there's a, a power to remain steady and stable. And, and the first way I want you to think about it is the power of presence, um, and that's not Christmas presents. That's the, the presence of somebody else. So uh, I'll tease Calvinists a little bit more here. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, like, that's where there's a lot of Calvinism ammo there. So if you're like, why do these people believe that? Boy, you're going to have to wrestle some verses in Ephesians 1 through 3. Um, but I think the Calvinists screw it up, and they they think Ephesians 1 is what Paul is trying to hammer here, and chapter 3 is where Paul summarizes what this is all about. So whatever you think about the Calvinism stuff, I don't really care. Uh, 1 through 3 is Paul, if you want to know what did Paul believe about Jesus in the church, Ephesians 1 through 3 is a great place to go, and you see him summarize what does he care most about. What is his prayer for these people in this church in light of everything that he said? And this is what he prays for them. He says, whoa, I pressed it once. That was wild. Nope, nope. This is what he says, 3.18-19. He says, may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And most of us can get there a little bit. So he has His power to understand. That's a brain thing. And most of us think, I'm going to understand this. I'm going to go get all these books. and I'm going to study. I'm going to go to every church Bible study. I'm going to write everything I'm writing on media. I just got to read more, whatever. And look at what he says this leads into. When you understand it, then may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. He'll say, I pray you have power to know Christ dwells in your hearts. He doesn't want us to just know this information about Jesus. He wants us to have a tangible, functional experience of the love of Christ. The point is, is all of our beliefs as Christians lead us to an experience of the presence of Jesus. A tangible, concrete experience of His love. This is the internal anchor that roots the soul. It's the presence of Christ in us. It's the experience of His nearness. This anchors the soul and gives us abiding confidence in all circumstances that we are loved. It won't, it won't always make sense. We won't always understand what He's up to or where He's leading us. But if the presence of Christ is real in our lives, it will give us peace and power through all of the storms of life. So when you think about the internal root, I want you to think about the power of Presence, and then the power of promise. So just, just past this in Ephesians 3. Here's the result. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So Paul is saying, if you understand God's love for you, and as an aside, he'll be like, which is beyond understanding, right? It's not like something you figure it out. Then you will experience the love of God, which is beyond your comprehension. And the result of that is you will be filled with life and power. This is Sermon on the Mount language. You will be made complete. You will be whole with all the fullness of life and divine power. So I kind of went off the rails a little bit in the the first service. Just ask yourself real quick. um, When you think of a Christian... Or your definition of maturity, or when you look at your own life, uh, where does the word power fall into there? And sometimes we get it all messed up, like thinking power means you're a CEO, or people jump, and, or you say jump, and they say how high, or, or whatever. I, I'm saying walking around with this confidence that you are filled with the presence of God. That your back is never against a wall. That there is never a room with no doors. That you have a father with a house on a, or cattle on a thousand hills. You know, how, how many of you walk around feeling as though you are imbued with divine power? This is the promise of growing in our awareness of the presence of Jesus in our lives. We chase after the love of God. We devote our lives to experiencing it. We will be made complete. The power of Jesus' presence is the promise of divine power. And you can just go read the Bible and find all of the, the promises. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's a pretty powerful promise when you feel like your life is a mess or when you feel like you're a mess. He will carry you. He will sustain you. He will provide for you. And ultimately, he will resurrect you. The internal root we need is the presence of Jesus that produces divine power. And without this, the storms of life will crush you. And if they don't crush you literally, in the sense of bringing about your own death, they'll crush you relationally, emotionally. Do you ever see somebody who's been a Christian for 50 or 60 years and they're just mean? And you're like, how did that happen? If you know a lot about God, but you're not experiencing His love, and the losses and the limitations of life pile up, the inevitable result of that is bitterness, cynicism, anger, hardness of heart. Without the root of the presence of Christ, you'll be overwhelmed by life's losses and all of your limitations. But it need not be this way. The root is available to us. And the way we get it, is gloriously simple, but incredibly difficult. From here on out, if you've been to church more than once, uh, you will probably not hear anything that you haven't heard before. So I'll preface that by saying, the disciplines of the Christian life, pursuing the presence of Jesus, the best analogy I've ever heard, the best metaphor, is that it's, it's like an invitation to watch the sunrise. Now, if you're in Panama City Beach, if you're down on 30A, and you're right on the water, uh, watching the sunrise is a matter of like sliding open the porch door or the balcony door, and you're like, sunrise, beautiful, glorious. Um, but who's got 30A money? You know what I mean? Who's going on vacation to Panama City Beach? So maybe you're, maybe you're going to Gatlinburg and Smoky Mountains, and some mornings you're going to wake up and it'll be cold, it'll be foggy, and you've got to go on a hike to get up there. Some places, it's easy to see the sunrise. Some places, it's very difficult. All you can do is put yourself in a position to see the sunrise, and then you have to wait and see what happens. You don't make the sunrise. You don't control the weather, but you do control whether or not you're in a spot where you can see the sunrise. So you do what you can do to get in position, and then you wait and see what happens. The practices that I'm going to talk about Lived out over time, I guarantee you, will provide you an experience of the presence of Jesus. I guarantee you. These practices, lived out over time, will provide you experiences of the presence of Jesus. And this will produce divine power, stability, and the comfort of God's promises. I guarantee it. But it will be difficult. And you will not always know what you're going to get. And you'll not always know whether or not it's working. It's like watching the sunrise. You can get in a position, but you can't make the sunrise. So how does Jesus say we develop the internal root? Verse 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Notice he calls the person wise. Uh, That'd be a great word for you to spend some time with over the summer. What does the Bible say about wisdom? What is a wise person? And what is Jesus saying we become? In essence, it's someone who can take the knowledge and wisdom of God and apply it to all of life's complexities. Christianity is not paint by numbers. It's more like playing jazz music where we're, we're floating in and out in all these different complicated situations. So Jesus says, this will make us wise. And I'll sum it up by telling you what we tell our children, um, which isn't to say your children, but sometimes the, the most powerful truths are the simplest ones. Usually, if it's good for a four-year-old, it will probably be good for a 70-year-old. So we say to our kids, listen and obey. That's the only way. Listen and obey. That's the only way. What is Jesus saying? How how do we develop this internal root? Well, see what he said first? Anyone who listens to my teachings. Not just anyone's teachings, but the teachings of Jesus. Jesus. Think about all the teachings that you fill your mind with, whether it's on podcasts or TV news or whatever. Um, How does that compare? How does that balance out with the teachings you're receiving from Jesus? There's a reason these crowds were in shock and awe over the teachings of Jesus. He taught with authority. If you want power and stability in your life, you must listen to the teachings of Jesus. So simply put, are you reading the Bible? You don't have to answer. Because most of you already feel guilty about that. Uh, I just wonder what would happen if we stopped looking at the Bible as this like divine checklist of something we have to do. Uh, does it change the way you view the Bible at all to see it as a way that you get to experience the real presence of the risen Christ? Uh, as a way that you get to experience the presence of a God who loves you and has pursued you? When Are you in his word? Um, Jesus promised that when he left, he would... Give us His Spirit, and His Spirit would lead us into all truth. So are you consuming His Word? Are you allowing Him to speak to you through it? But then are you also creating space in your life for the Spirit to lead you? I don't know about you, but when my life gets confusing, I've got a big notebook that I open up, and I start drawing diagrams and charts, and I call up my friends, I call Pastor Travis, I say, what do you think I should do? start thinking, I order 16 books on the subject, and, you know, I just go into strategy mode. And then you do that for 10 or 15 years, and you're like, God never talks to me. It's like, man, whatever. I'm like a little fried right now, so I find myself like biting my tongue because I'm a little on edge. It's like, listen, man, if you don't shut your mouth for 20 years, there's a good chance you're not going to know the other person that you're talking to. If you never listen to the voice of God, there's a good chance you're never going to hear it. So, yes, fill your mind, read, read the word, but are you ever quiet asking the Spirit to speak to you? Um... Can't do it for you, but we've got a field guide that may help. It's called Listen, How to Hear the Voice of God. And, you know, for my skeptics out there, maybe you're like, do you mean the real voice of God? I mean the real voice of God. You mean like in your spirit, though. You don't mean like, you, I'm saying God can speak to you like a person speaks to you. And if you're all skeptical, I would just argue that you don't listen. Or if you're like, I don't know about a church that would say God would talk to you, then I with, with great love and sincerity, I would say find another church. Like, if you're have fun with those people that believe God doesn't speak, or God won't talk to you, or like, I don't know what to tell you about that, but we believe firmly that God speaks, God leads, God will direct. Uh, he's a merciful father who loves talking with his children. Can you imagine if it's like, yeah, I, I've got my dad, he lets me talk to him, but he never talks to me. you be like, what kind of messed up relationship is that? Yeah, my dad never calls, he never says anything. Okay. We don't believe that. Sorry, you can see someone like the That's mostly exhaustion coming out of me right now. I'm sorry. Uh, So that's free. All those field guides, uh, they're out in the How We Grow wall. This one will be on the welcome table. It's free. You can take it. Uh, If you don't like paper, it's in the app now too. All of the field guides we have, you can read that. Um, So taste, how to encounter God in the Bible. Listen, how to hear the voice of God. Testify, how to share the gospel of Jesus. Rest, how to slow down and enjoy God. We want these to be super practical. You can read over a cup of coffee in 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I hope that would be helpful to you. I would just ask, when was the last time Jesus disagreed with you? Are you reading his word and you're listening to him and he disagrees with you? When was the last time he taught you something that pricked at you? that, That he pointed something out in you? That bothered you? Was uncomfortable for you? And I would just say, if you can't remember, you're probably not listening. How naive of us to think God would never disagree with us. Listen to what Jesus says. There is no stable life, whether in this one or the next, built on any other foundation. Listen to what he says and obey what he says. Christianity is an embodied faith. It must be lived and it must be practiced. It must be experienced. The one who listens and obeys is the wise person. Jesus says, the ones who listens to my teachings and follows them. And I make no illusion that this is going to be easy. Gosh, when Jesus says, if you won't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Do You think he doesn't realize how hard it is to forgive someone that you are raging mad at? That doesn't mean there isn't any work to be done. It doesn't doesn't mean that there isn't relational reconciliation. It doesn't mean that we just blankly... Just say, okay, you're forgiven. You know, we do that hard work. You think he doesn't realize how painful and costly and difficult this will be? When he says it's better to give and receive, better to give than to receive. Some of you have really hard jobs, and every penny feels like it counts. Jesus says the one who listens and obeys is the wise person. So what needs to go in your life? Sometimes his teachings will feel like seeing a sunset on the beach. other times it will feel like climbing a mountain in the dead of winter. But if you only obey Jesus when it comes natural to you, you are not obeying Jesus. You're using Jesus. The wholehearted Christian, the, the one striving to live the Beatitudes, they are anchored in God's character, anchored in his love, and they in turn live like their father. If you want that kind of life, there's no other way to get it than to listen and obey. Christianity must be lived, and and listen, if you listen to the teachings of Jesus and obey them over time, you will become whole people when the losses pile up, which they will. When the unexpected happens, we will grieve absolutely. We will experience pain, Life will be complicated and difficult, but our roots will be deep. Well, remember, it was no different for Jesus. Please don't make the mistake of thinking he had an easy life. It's filled with betrayal, loss, physical, and emotional pain. Isaiah will say that Jesus' face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. He was steady, his house held in the storm. And that same stability can be ours, that same confidence, that same power. If you want the external fruit of power, it can only come from the internal root of presence. So let us remember the presence of God with us, and how high and wide and long is the love of God for us in Christ. So we call our minds back to the night he was betrayed. where He took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, This is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. The first invitation of Jesus, the first teaching that he gives that he asks you to obey, is to come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me. And so if that's you, I would invite you to put all the questions aside about this or that, and come to Jesus. This meal is a sacred meal reserved for those who trust him and are trying to follow him. Uh, And so our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, uh, dip it in wine or juice. Wine, we'll have a piece of twine wrapped around it. There'll be stations in the back and up front and uh, gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray.